and welcome to a special edition of IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh Torpy, and today I'm joined by two speakers from our 2020 National Management Conference, the first one ever to be delivered entirely virtually. First, we talk to Callie Williams-Yost, founder and CEO of Flex Plus Strategy Group, about the present and future of flexible work practices. And spoiler alert, it doesn't just involve everyone working from home. Then we talk to Michael Jacobides, who holds the Sir Donald Gordon Chair of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at London Business School, about what businesses can do to not just survive this crisis, but learn from the lessons in the past to take a leap forward. We managed to chat while a typhoon was passing Michael overhead, but lucky our call managed to get through relatively unscathed. So I hope you enjoy the show. So Callie, um, I always start by asking my guests to give me their sort of theory of the case on the subject we're talking about. So what's your theory of the case when it comes to flexible working and flexible work cultures? Well, Hugh, um, my theory of the case when it comes to flexible working and flexible work cultures is that when culture-based flexible and remote work are part of your operating model, you unlock new levels of performance, engagement, and well-being that would otherwise be lost. And that is actually not just a theory, that is a fact. Mm. So tell me, the, tell me the evidence. Where's the, where's the evidence for the benefits of creating a truly flexible work culture? Because I do think about it from the other side. I wonder, is at a management level, is it all about consistency and planning? Um, so inflexible will help you with the planning. So where's the benefit of going that fully flexible work culture? Well, first and foremost, we have to assume that flexibility, there is structure and there is consistency around it, which we can talk about it a little bit later. But in terms of where are the benefits, I think we've all seen it in, in, in stark offset in the last few months, which is operating resilience. Mm. Those organizations with flexible work cultures were able to pivot much more quickly and much more seamlessly when the pandemic hit than those that were not. So just right there, you were able to continue to operate in a way that you were not if you did not have flexibility as part of the way that you operated already. But let's just say operating resilience, we all get it, we see it now. But add on top of that, if you have a flexible and dynamic work culture, you're able to attract and retain and develop a diverse, knowledgeable talent base that otherwise you would not. Then add on top of that, being able to optimize the way you use your workspace and the way you use your technology. And then add on top of that, being able to increase productivity because people can be intentional about when and where they are working in a way that allows them to get their job done more effectively. And then on top of that, the general increase in well-being when people are able to flexibly fit their work and life together. I mean, really, it, it's just... Strategic intentional flexibility has a return that cannot be argued and is something that hopefully now that we see how powerful it can be, organizations will take a much more thoughtful and serious approach to it. Yeah, and that's, that's my next question, really. We, we've been sort of going through uh, the biggest flexible work experiment of all time in 2020 uh, with people working and consuming from home. What have we learned so far? What have, what have been the big lessons? Uh, I know it's actually still quite early in it, but what have been the big lessons so far? So, so, so many things, Hugh, but I'll nugget it down to a couple. So first, we've learned that a large percentage of the global economy can rapidly shift and operate remotely mm. if necessary. Now, is it optimal in every case? No, not necessarily, but at least we're able to continue to run our organizations and manage our lives. So we've learned that is possible. 
Um, but we've also learned that it takes more than giving somebody a laptop and saying, hey, go work from home. Yeah. Um, you know, we're now realizing that we have to stabilize that. It really is, there are some processes that we have to put in place. We have to be more intentional about how we are clarifying what the priorities are that people have to accomplish, how they have to communicate with each other. I think we have to be more intentional around that. So there are things we have to sort of fix in order to stabilize where we are now. Um, but then we also, we've learned that this is gonna go on for a while. Um, this isn't going to be a sprint with the pandemic. Uh, this is a marathon until we're able to get to the other side and people feel safe and, and they can mm. go back to the workplace safely. But I think we've also learned that the um, DNA of work has fundamentally been changed by this. And it's going to require us to rethink how we're going to operate on the other side of the pandemic, too. Yeah, so the thing that's really struck me is we've talked so much about the digital revolution, but it really has been thrown into stark contrast how much of a digital society we've we've become in 2020, for all the good yep. and the bad. Yep. Um, yep. And it, any myths being busted? Like, have you had any of those nice, ah, told you so moments? <laughs> okay, so I'd say the two myths um, that I think have been broken, which are, oh, this can't be done remotely. Always the argument was, oh, this can't be done. Well, you know what? Actually, it can. In many shockingly, you know, in many shocking circumstances, things you thought could not be like, so just let's take, for example, medicine. Okay. Yeah. How much was medicine a hands on, high touch interaction? And now a lot of it has been able to be moved to the to more digital interactions, which I think, you know, isn't just one of many examples. Um, I think the other myth is that people will abuse flexibility. Actually, it's mm -hmm. the opposite. People are actually, in many cases, finding they can't shut down and they're, they're giving more and they're burning out, but they're not abusing it. And I think in terms of those sort of nice told you so moments, people have said this to me, they're like, how rewarding is it that all of a sudden people are paying attention and, and seeing how powerful what you've been talking about for the last two decades really is? And I actually how I feel is so grateful that there there is a roadmap. There is yeah. um, a, a process of success that organizations can now embrace and take what they're experiencing in real time, this experiment, and take it to the next level for what is going to be the next reality of work. It is one of those things, if it, if it had happened even 15 years ago, it would have been a very, very different situation in terms of work. Totally. Um, you, you mentioned they're burning out, and I, I want to talk about short-term versus long-term when it comes to work from home and sustainable performance. I, I personally love working from home, but I can certainly see that the benefits wane a bit over the time. What are the dangers you'd be telling leaders in, say, uh, Twitter, who have recently told their employees they can, they can now work from home forever? Well, I think it's important for leaders to approach this from a now and a next perspective. And what that means is that right now, yes, in many cases, the work needs to be done in a remote way um, just to keep people healthy and safe. And it, it may not be optimal, but it's what we have to do right now. Mm. On the other side of it, which, you know, Bill Gates was just quoted in The Economist as saying that he thinks this is we're going to be on the other side of the pandemic, possibly mid to late next year. Yeah. So as that happens, 
where are we going to go next? And it is not going to be that everybody is working remotely on the other side of the pandemic. People will want to be together in some form or fashion at some point when they work with each other, with their clients. So what we're going to end up with is a, a dynamic on-site and remote hybrid operating, operating reality. So yeah. while right now you may be struggling with how to work remotely full-time. It may not be optimal for you. And I, as I said, I do think we need to be putting in place better ways of communicating and managing those boundaries right now. Yeah. Ultimately, that's not going to be where we go. And I think what Twitter is saying, and I think it was misunderstood perhaps, is that right now, and I think you see this with a lot of the tech companies that are just saying, you know, we're going to be remote through the end, mid to end of next year. They're just trying to put some structure around what's happening now and allow people to plan. Yeah. I think on the other side of it, you're going to see this hybrid on-site remote reality, even with those organizations. In fact, Facebook just bought a huge amount of real estate in New York City, having also announced that 50% of their workforce is going to be remote in 10 years. So they're already signaling it's not going to be just remote or just on site. It really is going to be this dynamic hybrid model. And, and what do you think um, the what do you think the office will look like? Um, is it are they going to change it? You know, is it rather than a headquarters? Is it going to be a collaboration center? You know, are, are we going to change or is it just going to be that there's less people in the office and it's just a little bit different of a mix? No, I think what we're going to have is workspace is going to become a tool, a resource for executing the work. And it's going to be a combination of on-site spaces. There could still be a headquarter, but headquarters, but it'll probably be a different type of headquarters. It will be more of a collaborative space where you come together for particular reasons. There probably will be maybe more um, satellite offices where on-site offices, but there will also be remote you will work remotely, whether it's at your client site or whether it's in your home or whether it's in a, a you know, drop down space somewhere, collaborative space somewhere. And also virtual is going to be a workspace. So it's going to be kind of this dynamic combination of spaces where we can work. It's going to be driven by what we're doing. So based on the task, we're going to determine how, when and where it is done best. That's ultimately what I think the workplace is going to look like. Well, we're trying to hear to get here to what the, the post-pandemic new normal will be, is there any examples that you can think of in 2019 that you'd say, actually, that might be quite close to what it would look like? Well, I can tell you the companies that we've worked with, um, that's ultimately where they have evolved to. Um, and every organization is going to be different, obviously, based upon the type of work that people do. Yeah. But it is a combination of sort of how, when, and where you are working. So it's it's all based on a consistent uh, planning, coordination, and execution model. So that's the consistency. It's a framework of decision-making, of planning, of execution that everybody is following. And that's what we call high-performance flexibility. So you're always, again, starting off with what it is you're trying to get done. And then everybody knows how to work together to, yeah. and it's in a partnership model to determine how, when, and where it's done best. So for example, sometimes based on whatever you're trying to get done, you will have a portion of it happening on site together. You will have maybe a portion of it happening, some of you on site, some of you remote, some of you at the client site. And you may even have a combination of full-time staff people working with um, on-demand talent on that's just being brought in for a particular reason. It's a very dynamic, flexible way of working that's driven by the work. 
and then it's determined that determines how, when, and where it's done best. Super. Um, let's talk the practicalities. You, you mentioned there how to get it done. So figuring out how to get to that place. I often see the word design when it comes to implementing strategies for the way an organization works. In your experience, do organizations generally deliberately design what they need in terms of the workforce, or does it all just come sort of come together piecemeal with no real deliberate thought? Okay, so I'm going to do pre and post pandemic. Okay, yeah. pre pandemic, it was a combination of both. It was a lot of random organic flexibility that didn't have any kind of strategic coordination yeah. to it. And there was also a very rigid approach, rule-based, policy-based approach to it that was very limiting. It just it wasn't able to pivot with the realities of the business. Post-pandemic, there is a way to be coordinated and intentional about um, building a flexible work culture that puts that framework of decision-making and coordination and planning and execution in place that allows for the, the way work is done to pivot with the realities of the business but puts enough process in place that you can target it and it can be strategic and intentional. You've mentioned intentional and intentionality a couple of times. Can you just talk to that um, sort of, it sounds like an almost a philosophy or a mindset. It is. It really is about approaching work and how, when, and where it's done in a thoughtful, deliberate way. So mm. it's about what are we trying to do? This is the question that underlies high performance flexibility at its core. What are we trying to do? And how, when, and where do we do it best? And it's stepping back and saying, okay, given this task, given this priority, where do we do it best? When do we do it best? How do we do it best? How do we do it together in the most effective way? Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more deliberative. And it sounds like, um, it sounds um, perhaps like there's an extra layer of um, work to it. And there yeah. does require more thought but once it's in place, you begin to see that the dynamic just makes it all flow so much more effectively and, and productively that it's well worth it. But it does require when you're not just coming to work, when work is not just where you go every day, yeah. right? Like I'm going to work. That does shift the focus to the task. So that is what it is going to entail. Mm. And. Another thing where we sort of uh, we're starting to intentionally look at is engagement and well-being. And um, we won't be able to go into these topics in the detail that they probably deserve. But I do want to talk about the relationship between them um, in terms of work and work practices. What role can well-being programs play in creating more engaged employees and what role are they actually playing right now? Okay, so the role that well-being programs can play in terms of the engagement of employees is pretty simple. Well, uh, two things. One, there's well-being programs, and then there's the well-being that comes from being able to take take more control in how your work and life fit together. Okay, so I'm going to break those two things out, but they they accomplish the same goal, which is when you show people you care about them, they give you so much more back in return. They really do. And so from a well-being program standpoint right now, people are really struggling. People are afraid. They are having a hard time just adapting to this new reality that we are in, whether, you know, just personally being concerned about their jobs, 
um, about their health, about how they're going to take care of their kids when their kids aren't in school. I mean, there's just a lot going on. So well-being programs around mental health supports, um, just physical health supports, child care supports can be really effective right now in showing that you care. So the the well-being that comes from also being able to have some control and flexibility over how, when, and where your work fits together, people, again, they will give you back more if you give that to them. They will perform for you. It may not look like the traditional work day or work mm-hmm. model, but they will still do their jobs and they will give you more. We have seen this time and time again, just being able to have some degree of control. People will go the extra mile. They'll work that extra three hours for you because you gave them that flexibility on the other side. So it really does pay off. It sounds like what you're talking about is sort of personalized well-being programs. Yeah, well, one size does not fit all. (laughs) So that is why when you roll these out, you want to make sure it's also a common, it's a combination of direct supports, you know, mental health supports, all those good things, but yeah. also the ability to determine how, when, and where you're going to actually do your work and fit your life into that. Um, they have to go together. It needs to be a whole, a whole approach. Um, I was going to ask you this question in a, in a very niche sense. I think I'm actually just going to throw a couple of words at you. Um, flexible work practices with children at home. What, what's, What's the advice? Um, what do you think is happening right now? And how do you think organizations should react to both new parents, uh, parents with lots of children um, that are that have to, to work uh, from home with them? Okay, so a couple things. One, this is a historically unprecedented, uh, unprecedented moment in time. Mm-hmm. This is an absolute nightmare for parents. Yeah. And they are they do not have access to their traditional school-based childcare supports. So I think what organizations need to understand is that parents are doing the best they can with what they have, and there needs to be a willingness to partner with parents to come up with creative, flexible ways for them to be able to do their jobs and also manage their lives. Knowing that parents do want to perform for you, there needs to be a very now next approach to this, meaning right now until those supports are back in place, there may yeah. need to be some some even more, um, um, even a reduction in maybe how, when, how much they're working for a period yeah. of time without them feeling like it's going to derail them forever in their careers. I think that's been one of the main issues is people are afraid of losing their jobs. So they don't want to come to the table and, and come up with a solution like that in case it's needed. So it is really very much approaching this as this is unprecedented. This is not forever. We're going to get to the other side of this. Schools are going to open again. Child care supports are going to open again. And it's going to be a different reality. But just how can we all work together to get through this? And that also understands that people who don't have children may also need that some creative flexibility as well. And I think if we open that conversation up to those that also that don't have children, but also may need that, it'll reduce some of this friction that may be happening right now mm. between parents and non-parents who feel like they're not being supported. Um, just let's look at this as an unprecedented time. And how do we partner to come up with creative win-win solutions for, for parents, individuals, and the business? So it's very much sort of a line manager to employee conversation, sort of directed overall generally by the CEO and leadership team. 
I think the CEO and leadership team need to really encourage these problem-solving conversations, creative yeah. problem-solving pilots. Call it a pilot. Okay, this is what I say. <laughs> You're not getting married, all right? Just pilot something for this near-term period that we're trying to get through and actually use it to inform and inspire what could be done next. You may learn really cool, innovative ways that work could get done that you can then draw upon to determine what your next operating model is going to look like post-pandemic. Super. I'm not in a marriage. I'm in a, I'm in a long-term pilot. <laughs> so for the, the leader listening right now, firstly, how can they find out where they currently stand? Um, is it simply a matter of just asking their people how flexible they feel their work is? So what you want to do is step back and do take a thoughtful, deliberate discovery process right now. Um, you want to look at two key elements. You want to look at the infrastructure of flexible work, and you want to look at the culture of shared leadership that is leveraging that infrastructure. And what that means is, so the, well, I'm going to go into more detail in the conference on what this means, but I'll tell mm -hmm. you right now, the infrastructure you want to look at is you want to look at how people are using technology. How is that working? Because a lot of people went into this without the ability to use the technology they had to its full extent. They definitely dove in and figured it out. But how is it going right now? Is the technology working? Is it not? What more do you need? Then you want to look at the remote work. You want to look at the flexibility in time. You want to look at the flexibility in the work processes that people have. Did they adapt? Mm -hmm. You want to also look at the work space that you have on site and the remote space that people are using. This is when you should be looking at your workspaces right now, both yeah. on site and off site, and begin to reconfigure what that is going to look like going forward. The danger right now is that CFOs are seeing nobody in the workspace <laughs> and saying, hey, why do we need this at all? Let's just get rid of it. Okay. That We're saving on lighting. Yeah, exactly. Get don't do that. Okay. So really avoid the all or nothing trap. Be very thoughtful about, okay, on the other side of this, in this dynamic on-site remote reality that we will have. What is the workspace going to look like to us and how are we going to use it? Then you want to look at the culture of shared leadership that is going to leverage that infrastructure. We forget about this. We tend to focus just on workspace and technology because it's concrete, but it's about the people and how they're actually using that infrastructure to get the work done. So you want to look at, do your people have the skills and tools they need to be intentional and planful about what they're trying to get done? And then how, when, and where do they do it? Our teams, do they know how to coordinate with each other? Are they being clear about accessibility and responsiveness? And managers, do they know how, do they have the basics of good management? Most managers do not know how to manage. Okay. So mm -hmm. So they went into this this pandemic without the basic skill set of management and they dove in, but they may need some more skills and they also need to understand how to lead in a flexible work culture. So these are the things you want to understand where you are now on all those different dimensions. And then what you want to do is you want to begin to be execute on that vision and close the gap so you're ready on the other side when the pandemic is over. Brilliant. And I think you gave me a very comprehensive answer there. Who are the people and experts you need to get around you? Who, who are the people that really take responsibility and to drive this sort of uh, transformation? Because it is kind of a transformation project. It is a, it is a it is a fundamental transformation in the way your organization is operating. It is not a policy. It is not a program. Okay, this is the first point, which then brings me to who you need to have around you. 
This is not something you can assign to somebody. There was an article um, in the Washington Post today about this new um, role in an organization called the head of remote work. That's a mistake, okay? You can't make that a function. Um, What you need to do is you need to create a cross-functional task force to be responsible for determining what this is going to look like, and then what the execution strategy is going to be, and then lead it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it has got to be owned by the business, by each individual employee, by each manager, by each team, and by each leader has got to own the flexibility and how, when, and where work is going to get done in their organization. There, There's a consistent Again, that consistent framework of planning, coordination, and execution can be put in place, and the consistency in the infrastructure that you're going to have available, but and the the culture that you're going to be you're going to put in place. But ultimately, how that is going to play out day to day has got to be owned by the business. So that cross functional team is going to be able to cover all the bases: technology, mm-hmm. HR, health and safety, facilities, legal but then also key representatives from each aspect of your organization's line business has to be part of determining what this is going to look like and then how you're going to implement on it. Super. Um, I got to throw this question. It's just as, as you talked about a head of remote work, and I, I totally get your point there. Do you think in a, in a very broad sense, this sort of shift towards remote working will change the relationship between employees and employers and, and remuneration, incentives. Someone said to me the other day, um, if I'm expected to work from home, uh, they better pay a bit of my mortgage. Where do you think will that uh, land? That's that's part of this process, right? In determining yeah. what's next. I mean, that's a very valid point. Um, I don't, I think organizations are going to have to come up with the answers to those questions. So if you know, you're not having as much business travel um, and people are going to be doing more of their work from home. Do you transfer some of those resources over to setting people up in home offices and reimbursing them for some of those costs? That is a valid question to determine. And these are this is all part of that discovery process and really being very thoughtful about all those elements and what that looks like. Um, it's a new world. The DNA of work has been changed by this pandemic. Now, the challenge to organizations is to acknowledge that and adapt. Um, and that's one of the going to be the key, one of the key factors. But it's not just about remote work. This is one of the key things. It's a, it is yes. about place, space, time, technology, process, and pace of work. All of those elements go into strategic culture-based flexibility. So when you just look at remote, when you just look at, at, at place, that's one piece of that puzzle and you miss all the other elements. And that's why I just don't think you, you just making a head of remote work is literally like, you know, okay, let me make you head of one little part of my organization, my yeah. one little part of the way work is done. It doesn't, it's not going to be effective. It's a great point you make though, because I think we're all so zeroed in on working from home and remote working. We don't look at it as a sort of holistic system and probably a bigger danger of that right now than at any other time. Yes. Um, finally, so um, I, my members will will have access to the uh, insights of your National Management Conference session afterwards and and access to the National Management Conference if they're, if they're, if they're attending. But finally, um, for those wanting to dive into the subject a bit more, any further reading you'd recommend or resources to check out? 
So in near term specifically, I would recommend if you want to know what, what are the skills and tools that your people need to have in order to be that partner in terms of executing strategic work flexibility, uh, check out my books. I've spent many, many years studying the skills and writing about them and putting them in place. The first book is Work Plus Life, Finding the Fit That's Right for You. That is the how-to skills around a formal plan that would change how, when, and where you work officially. Then the second book is Tweak It, which is the day-to-day informal small shifts and flexibility that that individuals need to know how to manage. So together, that is the full skill set that your people need to have, how how to officially reset and then to just manage those shifts day to day. I would also um, urge you to go to our website, look at our 2018 research report. It, what, it It's a national study of full-time US workers, but I think it, I believe it just applies everywhere. And you can see really how training and guidance around flexibility really does significantly increase productivity, coordination and communication across teams. So you can begin to see the data behind why now it's not just once you figure out where you want to go in this next phase, it really is going to take training and guidance of all levels of your people. And it really does make a difference. So begin to see why that does, why that is worthwhile. And you see the data in that study. Super, that's fantastic. Uh, Callie, um, really, really look forward to the your session at the National Management Conference. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Hugh. I'm looking forward to meeting with everybody in September as well. Um, Michael, hello and welcome. Um, I'd like to start with your session at the National Management Conference. What's your theory of the case? What's that true line that you'll be speaking about? What I really want to focus focus on is uh, helping us think most people focus on the fact that this has been a difficult period and people are battening the hatches. You're speaking um, a moment ago about uh, uh, the weather and the way that it gets worse. But the problem is that in addition to the difficulty we're facing that uh, may have to do with the fact that people don't have money or get laid off or that Mm. uh, business conditions are adverse, we are looking at some structural changes. And what I think is really important is to understand what are these structural changes because COVID crisis has uh, taken some of the underlying changes in the environment, changes in what customers want, and also has amplified them, partly Mm. because people are now buying stuff digitally that they didn't before. It has helped us work differently, and it has helped usher in uh, these digital platforms and ecosystems more than they did in the past. So I think that we need to rethink what we sell the ways in which we sell it, our business models, because the expectations of customers and of our partners are different. And the very final bit is that it offers an opportunity for us to reconsider where we allocate our energy and where we allocate our capital. Well, you mentioned uh, consumers and digitization there. So let's jump in there. One of my favorite stories is the rise of Alibaba and the e-commerce in China after the SARS epidemic. Very similar to what you were talking about. Essentially, consumer habits changed significantly enough, such as older people buying uh, online, that it ended up changing the economy. Do you think that's going to be what's going to happen here? Or what do you think is going to be the big shift that COVID will bring about in that sort of medium to long term? I think that this is a great analogy. I think that we're in for an even bigger structural 
exchange. Mm. And the reason is that we have had to have a prolonged period of changing our habits. You know, if you look at studies that look at how long it takes you to form a new habit, it's an average of 66 days. Mm. So we have seen now something which is forced and much longer, which means that we're now revisiting the ways that we consume. Perhaps we don't like it at first, mm. but it gets under the skin. It becomes part of our muscle memory in terms of the way that we buy things. And I mm. think that as we are starting to contemplate changing our habit in ways that before you wouldn't have done, you get new opportunities. I think that we're also seeing a greater openness. The regulators are being more interested in things that relate to digital delivery of mm. healthcare. And I think that we all are becoming dependent on digital distribution in new ways. So I absolutely think that this is going to be both an area of challenge because some of the existing businesses will find it harder to do things and an area of opportunity in as much as there are new opportunities to embed yourselves in different ways of distributing and of producing. And you need to take a strategic look and move out of the areas of opportunities and strengthen your position in areas of strength. Yeah, and, and digitization, it's, it's one of those words, it would, it would probably turn off a lot of people because they've seen it in every session at every conference for the last two decades. But is this finally it now? You know, you see a lot of good arguments made that the black debt led to workers' rights and the rise of the middle class, Spanish flu accelerated the move towards socialized medicine. Has COVID done the same for digital technologies where it's just gone from, not from A to B, but from A to Z? Well, if you look at change and for those for the people that studies change, we know that what looks like sudden and episodic change is really the culmination of a number of processes mm. for a longer period of time, accentuated by some tipping. And I think that we've done a lot of the pre-work, so lots of the teething problem of getting new technologies, of finding systems that can interoperate, of having computers that can exchange data, data in formats that can be easily understood, and then finding the technologies that make them simple enough for you and I to be holding them in their hands. The mm. device from which I'm speaking now, a phone that a few years ago would have been unthinkable in terms of what it can do. And what we're now seeing is that as this is being completed, the opportunities are becoming amplified precisely because of the customer acceptance of doing things digitally is finally there. I think that that was the final piece. And I think that the more people say, hey, I like all of this solution provision, the more you see these changes. Uh, when you look them from a distance. Yesterday, I was in um, a virtual panel of Haya, one of the big Chinese um, uh, manufacturers, a company that owns uh, General Electric white appliances and uh, candy, among others. And uh, there was a gentleman who was presenting part of their internet of clothing. And their internet of clothing consists of the a triple wing bird and the balcony scenario that sounds totally bonkers but basically they are creating ways of connecting your wardrobe with the different types of machines that the Chinese have with minute spaces that they have to be able to go out which are their balconies and they're trying to think about how different companies are competing for the orchestration of the value propositions in delimited spaces like their balconies. They want to manage the connections that you have between your devices and in terms of the different clothes 
in your own balcony. Now that sounds absolutely bonkers, but apparently it is driving the sales of machines in China for people that are living in these tight spaces. Who would have thought that your fridge ordering the milk is going to be an important strategic battle. Well, it is. Because the question with smart fridges is who's going to be ordering our milk? We are now moving into something which seems a little bit like the Jetsons or other yeah. uh, very 1960s sci-fi. But if you think about the stuff that you do and uh, the support that you get and what exactly Alexa does for you, we're not that far off. So are we seeing changes? You bet. If my grandmother was alive, she would be both thrilled and I think slightly mortified. <laughs> just just on, a, on a, a bit of a tangent, we see tech companies uh, doing incredibly well this year, particularly financial, financially, and they've also been able to gobble up market share from more traditional providers. Do you think there's going to be a backlash to this? I, I remember in the 90s when Microsoft was nearly broken up due to their market dominance, something pretty unthinkable today. Do you think conversations like that could start to reemerge? Well, I think that uh, we are seeing a sea change in terms of the regulatory approach. And mm. I've also been involved in the discussion of regulation. And frankly, I started as a strategy guy, but I spent more of my time in regulation. I've been involved in crafting some of the new regulation laws and speaking with the people um, in the commission or uh, in, in some of the people responsible for economic policy for the big technology companies. And I think that we are now moving into a new era because... Um, it is clear that some companies that have an unusual grasp over the individual customers are able to exert their muscles and some, Apple in particular, is yeah. flexing them. And I think that Apple may have just started unleashing some seeds of grief because it decided to say, anyone who sits on my platform, give me 30% if the purchase is happening in app. And I think that looking at uh, the fight between Apple and Fortnite, the makers of Epic Games, mm. is interesting. But now you have companies like Tinder, Match.com, that are going out of the woodwork, saying, well, hang on a minute, these people are unfair for us. So it isn't just big tech against everyone else. It mm. is very big tech against big tech. And I think that some of the companies that have a particular role in orchestrating these ecosystems, having locked people in in behavioral ways that make it hard for them to go shop around are creating uh, some concerns in terms of both other businesses and those that look at consumer rights. And I can tell you, speaking with people that are in the policymaking and regulatory establishment in Europe, that there will be some action that will be taken. And I think that that may help further change the uh, the environment and the context uh, in Europe. And this is one of the few times that Europe is in the, some of the three ideas are actually creating a precedent and a number of them are being followed around the world. So the big companies, the big tech companies are facing the struggle between dominating and continuing their growth. And by the way, needing to deliver on the promised growth that their multiples mm. imply means that they need to dominate more. So yeah. I do expect this to be an interesting area and I expect 2021 to be the year of regulatory pushback. Super, that's really interesting. So let's move down from that sort of macro level to the more organizational level. Reading your work this year, there seems to be a strong sense of urgency coming from you in terms of the traps you feel business leaders are falling into during the COVID crisis. 
So from your point of view, what are those big traps uh, leaders are falling into right now? Absolutely. And I think that I would uh, start by uh, saying that organizations left to their own devices are doing some things that don't help them. I mean, this is mm. part of uh, uh, the inertial structure of organizations. Organizations have this tendency, which are normal, which is why we call them organizational pathologies, uh, to try to replicate the past. The problem is that when mm. conditions change, the things that organizations can be relied to do, and they're not terribly clever, they're not terribly effective, but oh well, ho-hum, they happen. Well, this can be seriously problematic. And when you have challenges, well, the challenges can take advantage if they move fast of the organizations that move slow and follow all of these buys. What are these? Well, part of them is that they want to keep thinking about the same customers and the same needs when things are changing. So the first set of challenges to understand what's changing and what's not, either because you're asking directly or as your clients may not be able to be all-knowing by looking outside, by understanding what are the changes of patterns that we can observe when we're looking not only at other sectors, but at other countries where we see the changes that exist there, at companies that are at the forefront of innovation or perhaps at private equity firms uh, that are looking and spending their time betting in the areas uh, of growth and moving away from the areas that are not as exciting anymore. Um, it is also to think about the ways in which you can change your business models because changing business model means changing the nature of your cash flow. Organizations are loath of leaving any cash flow opportunities, but that might mean that they leave a whole categories of cash flow opportunities because that would require them to reorganize the way that they're structured. The final thing that they do, I think, quite poorly, unfortunately, is to have the courage of reallocating uh, both time and energy and capital. Yeah. Because what we know is that firms that find difficulties try to simply cut all expenses, including CapEx and R&D and investment and stakeholders. But the problem is that this is not something that helps in the long term. If you look at organizations that have been able to be successful, they are the organizations that have been able to combine the cost cutting with selective investment in growth pillars and in thinking about how you don't just reduce the costs, but identify the areas where you need to build a position as you have created a map of what the opportunity landscape is in mm. terms of the strategy. And I think that this is one of the big differences, um, difficulties uh, that we've got with the organizations. And that's why we need to make sure that we don't let an organization go in autopilot and that we don't just think about cutting costs of the one thing that is important for us to do if we move yeah. forward. And, and, and those inertia forces sort of uh, pulling everyone towards sort of old habits. Um, I'd imagine the other side of that, the pushing, is the change in consumer habits. So what I'm wondering for leaders is looking to see how their customers' habits, habits have changed in their sector. Where should they start? And I say this in the context of a leader with tightening budgets, maybe less people than they had at the start of the year, and their market itself still in flux. Well, I think that the first thing that we need to do is to make sure that you uh, are able to look outside your own organization. Uh, the problem yeah. is that we hear the stories from our own clients rather than trying to figure out where the areas of growth are. We're trying to protect the customers that um, are that we may be losing, but 
uh, the question is, other than cost, what are the new value propositions that appear to be gaining ground? What are the areas uh, where value is being created in our sector? And perhaps whether in which we are going to offer some services that cater to a very particular set of um, uh, customers. And uh, uh, one of the major changes that we see is the shift from companies that are serving particular products in particular areas. If you take healthcare, that you say yeah. that I only do deal with, um, you know, part of the um, uh, the underlying infrastructure or the billing or um, you know the drug delivery or whatever that might be. Now we see companies that span more parts of the value chain. Not all of them done themselves. Some yeah. of them they do themselves. Others they rely on partnerships. For others they build ecosystems. But what they do at the same time is that they are much better attuned to the needs of particular groups that they know how to serve. That could be people with chronic needs or people with acute care or people that are in particular age groups. So I think that better segmentation, the creation of broader needs and becoming uh, not an island, but part of a collaborating force, I think is going to be the direction that we want to look at and then saying, who's doing it, who's doing it effectively? And what is it that I can learn? And the final bit is trying to experiment because thankfully some of these uh, innovations don't require betting the entire firm, but it can happen through um, the effort to try some innovation and then see how that innovation flies. So is this really the time to sort of basically essentially reconsider what your business does and what it is at the most basic fundamental levels? Absolutely, and I think that this is what the crisis does, which is useful. Crisis mm -hmm. is going to be a shock. It gives you a shock. It means that you will need to do things like cutting salaries, reducing costs, perhaps firing people. Well, if you're going to take the shock, might as well part, take part of the benefit and might as well take a look at how you can take this crisis, not just as a contraction of demand, but as something that reflects the underlying changes, the new digital channels and the new business models, uh, the potential that you can work via engagement with new platforms and ecosystems and chart your way forward because the environment won't return back to what it was before the crisis. Oh, what about those leaders that can't do anything about it due to a lack of source, resource? You know, they see the opportunities, but they can't do it. Actually, let me ask you this in, the other, in a, another way. What can leaders with very little resources, including time, do right now? How can they innovate? Well, I think the, the question is whether they are able to um, get resources that exist outside their boundaries. I think that being able to prioritize and being able to, first of all, stop spending time where they think that there is little upside, being yeah. able to pull the plug in some areas of the business um, or just taking some tough decisions sooner rather than later might allow them to get some uh, more time and some more capacity to respond. Because if you start, if you just continuously firefight things that you think perhaps on the margin could be, um, could be salvageable, then you might miss the opportunity to be able to properly respond. And I think that this is one of these other unfortunate habits of trying to save absolutely everything rather than saying that's not going to go anywhere mm. let me you know say that that's enough will be enough with that we'll have to take a hit 
and after we take a hit, uh, we'll need to get the time to look beyond that and get some resources to think about the future because otherwise you'll just manage your decline. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the key phrase, manage your decline. Um, a final question. Um, if a leader is listening right now and they've probably just taken their first deep breath in about six months, but you know, are feeling confident their business will survive and are now looking for more for a path back to growth, I suppose. What would you say to them? What should be the first thing they do today? I think that they need to go to someone that is outside their circle and try to figure out in their broader line of business where they think the opportunities lie. Mm -hmm. We tend to be very bound by people that we work with, by our own small circle, by um, our existing customers. And sometimes that means that we are missing things that everyone else is looking at. So try to get an outside view. Try to see whether in addition to being uh, immersed in the problems that you're solving anyway, you might not do yourself a a favor by being a little bit more forward-looking. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers.